section eighteen of social life in england seventeen fifty to eighteen fifty by f j folks jackson this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela nagami lecture six social abuses as exposed by charles dickens part three in treating of the dishonest little legal practitioners dickens indulges his taste for burlesque humour witness the scene in which dodson and fogg are visited by mr pickwick and the two lawyers try to provoke him to commit an assault or to use slanderous language and sam weller without ceremony drags his master out of the office mr sampson brass is also a subject of rollicking humour as is his sister the fair sally witness the scene where brass visits quilp at his wharf on the thames and is compelled to drink spirits neat and almost boiling and is made sick by the pipe the little monster makes him smoke or when brass aided by quilp's wife and mother-in-law is writing a description of the supposed corpse of his missing client and recalls quilp's characteristics his wit and humour his pathos and his umbrella i confess i do not quite understand how brass was able to get kit imprisoned our author's law appears a little stagey i should say that type of lawyer had disappeared but i once did come across a dodson and fogg though a pianoforte not a widow was the cause of my costly experience let us now turn from the somewhat painful abuses which dickens denounces to a more cheerful subject that of parliamentary elections here i can speak frivolously for i am one of those who have grave doubts whether a good or bad system of election in my country at any rate matters much for choose them how you will the representatives of the people never seem to represent anything but their own private interests let us take mr pickwick's experiences at edenswill which is i believe the now disenfranchised borough of sudbury in suffolk about fourteen miles from bury st edmunds whither mr pickwick started on his expedition to thwart the plans of mr jingle and had his famous experience at the young ladies school his friend mr perker was you will recollect the agent of the honourable samuel slumkey spirited contest my dear sir said mr perker to pickwick i am delighted to hear it said mr pickwick rubbing his hands i like to see sturdy patriotism on whatever side it is called forth and so it's a spirited contest oh yes said the little man very much so indeed we have opened all the public houses in the place and left our adversary nothing but the beer shops masterly stroke of policy that my dear sir eh the prospects however were doubtful for mr fizkin had thirty-three electors locked up in the coach-house of the white hart all the hotels were full of voters and mrs perker had brought green parasols for the wives of doubtful supporters of mr slumkey then came the day of nomination and during the whole time of the polling the town was in a perpetual fever of excitement everything was conducted on the most liberal and delightful scale excisable articles were remarkably cheap at all the public houses a small body of electors remained unpolled until the very last day they were calculating and reflecting persons who had not yet been convinced by the arguments of either party although they had had frequent conferences with each 
one hour before the close of the poll mr perker solicited the honour of a private interview with these intelligent these noble these patriotic men it was granted his arguments were brief but satisfactory they went in a body to the poll and when they returned the honourable samuel slumkey of slumkey hall was returned also to persons accustomed to modern parliamentary elections in england this passage would need a commentary to be understood the nomination and the show of hands amid riotous disorder is a thing of the past the protracted poll lasting in some cases for several days the non-resident electors billeted in the inns at the candidate's expense and the whole scene dickens depicted belongs to another age which is almost incomprehensible to the england of to-day sam weller's story of his father and the voters had more point in those days than now mr weller was offered a twenty-pound note one hundred dollars and it was suggested that if the coach were overturned by the bank of a canal it might be a good thing strangely enough an accident happened to quote sam's words you wouldn't believe it sir continued sam with a look of inexpressible impudence at his master that on the wery day he came down with those voters his coach was upset on that air wery spot and every man of them was turned into the canal in the unreformed parliament before eighteen thirty two the boroughs had each its own peculiar electorate and i am glad to use for my information a book written by two learned scholars now in america mr and mrs porritt in not a few places the election of members was vested in the mayor and burgesses in others the different guilds and corporations were the electors in one case the franchise was more democratic even than now the very tramps who slept in the town of preston became voters not infrequently the members were nominated by a local magnate in many cases the town sold its nomination to the highest bidder and this was occasionally the case at eatanswill if so be that it represents sudbury but frequently the electors were the so-called freemen of the borough the name takes us back to medieval times when slavery was in existence or to the days when the guilds were close corporations and no one not free of them could practise any trade but in later times the freedom was a matter of inheritance and could even be taken up in some cases by marriage with a freeman's daughter the franchise in many towns was enjoyed only by these freemen and in ipswich to take an example familiar to me most of them were non-resident in an election in the twenties which is reputed to have cost the candidates thirty thousand pounds one hundred and fifty thousand dollars i have been told that they chartered ships to bring electors from holland this is doubtless why all the hotels in eatanswill were crowded and explains the elder mr weller's adventure by the canal bribery was illegal and in a famous case in eighteen nineteen sir manasseh massey lopez was fined ten thousand pounds fifty thousand dollars and imprisoned for two years for practising it at Grampound. but it was an exceptional case and the lords threw out the bill for disfranchising the borough now we are on the subject of political life i cannot resist reminding you of a perfectly delightful sketch of a political fraud in the person of mr gregsbury in nicholas nickleby 
he comes into the story for no particular reason except to give dickens the joy of describing the sort of man he had doubtless observed when he was pressman in the house of commons nicholas is present when the deputation arrives to request mr gregsbury to resign his seat and mr pugstyles is its spokesman my conduct pugstyles said mr gregsbury looking round upon the deputation with gracious magnanimity my conduct has been and ever will be regulated by a sincere regard for this great and happy country whether i look at home or abroad whether i behold the peaceful industrious communities of our island home her rivers covered with steamboats her road with locomotives her streets with cabs her skies with balloons of a power and magnitude hitherto unknown in the history of aeronautics i say whether i look at home etc etc i clasp my hands and turning my eyes to the broad expansive of my head exclaim thank god i am a briton when even this outburst does not meet with approval and the deputation presses mr gregsbury to resign the member reads a letter he has addressed to mr pugstyles in which he says actuated by no personal motives but moved only by high and great constitutional considerations i would rather keep my seat and intend doing so no in all the changes time has brought one thing does not change our politicians are still the same in our mutual friend our author touches once more on the state of the poor and their terror of the parish no one who has read this novel with its wealth of characters amazing even for dickens for even in his other works you fail to find so many types as bella wilfer mr and mrs boffin fascination fledgeby the doll's dressmaker mr silas wegg mr venus rogue riderhood the veneerings to mention only a few no one i say can ever forget the old washerwoman betty higdon and her horror of the workhouse how it haunted her whole life and gave an additional terror to death that thereby she would fall into the hands of the parish and be buried by it and in this novel dickens is as severe on the injudicious charity of the philanthropists and faddists as he is upon the callousness of the guardians of the poor there is no more terrible satire on the mistakes of the education of that age than his delineation of bradley headstone i have never to my recollection read any discussion of this character but i have often thought that in headstone and charlie hexham his pupil he is giving a warning of the dangers of modern education universal education was not yet adopted in england which was the most backward of countries in this respect but it was in the air and dickens foresaw that some of the principles adopted would prove serious to the community he dwells on the mechanical efficiency of the teaching the learning to write essays on any subject exactly one slate long for example on the miscellaneous and useless information imparted on a bible teaching which has nothing to do with vital religion dickens recognized that the education of all classes was killing individuality and not fostering moral or spiritual qualities he recognized that in the type of charlie hexham it was encouraging a desire for respectability consisting 
not in taking one's coat off to work, but in working in a black coat, which was killing the finer feelings in which the poor often show to the advantage of the rich. And in Bradley Headstone, Dickens points out that all this smug education was powerless to restrain the elemental ferocity of human nature in the schoolmaster, who looked natural in rogue riderhood's clothes, and not himself in his decent black coat. There was latent in him all the ferocity of a hardened criminal, and recent events are showing how powerless education is really to civilize the heart of man. I have spoken of the need of a map of London to understand Dickens, and I shall now take an extract from Oliver Twist to illustrate this remark. Oliver has just met with John Dawkins, otherwise the artful Dodger, who offered to take him to a lodging. It was nearly eleven o'clock when they reached the turnpike at Islington. They crossed from the Angel into St. John's Road, struck down the small street which terminates at Sadler's Wells Theatre, through Exmouth Street and Coppice Row, down the little court by the side of the workhouse, across the classic ground which once bore the name of Hockley in the Hole, thence to Little Saffron Hill the Great, and so on to when they reached the bottom of the hill, his, Oliver's conductor, catching him by the arm, pushed open the door of a house near Field Lane. Now I almost defy anyone to find all these localities in a modern map, you would have in the first place to start in the middle of London at the Angel at Islington. Sadler's Wells is now in the midst of a network of streets. It was only when I turned to Northcock's History of London, which has a good map dated 1772, that all was plain. Islington was a village outside London, Sadler's Wells a suburban resort. Exmouth Street was not yet built, but Coppice Row, Hockley in the Hole, and, of course, Saffron Hill and Field Lane, were all easily found. In speaking of this great delineator of human character, as now needing explanation and comment, I have no doubt that he belongs to that small group of writers whose works belong to all ages. We hear complaints in England that young people do not read him, and the same were made when we were young. But with us, and I believe with you, his popularity from time to time revives, and no educated man or woman can ignore him. The fact that he has appealed so strongly to the imagination of America is alone a proof of the universality of his genius, for like Shakespeare and the classics of all countries, his works are the property not of one people but of the world. He is not perfect, we should not love him so much if he were. He has faults of style, of arrangement, even of taste. It is easy to criticize, but because of his very excellences, his humor, his pathos, his wide sympathy, his hatred of injustice and oppression, it seems almost presumption to endeavor to sing his praises. May I conclude with those prophetic words he puts into the mouth of Martin Chuzzlewit on leaving your country, which he made his own by denouncing its failings as unsparingly as he did those of his own motherland, in the hope that both you and we, America and England, would conquer them and become the common benefactors of humanity. I am thinking, said Mark, 
that if i was a painter and was called upon to paint the american eagle how should i do it paint it like an eagle as you could i suppose no said mark that wouldn't do for me sir i should want to draw it like a bat for its short-sightedness like a bantam for its bragging like a magpie for its honesty like a peacock for its vanity like an ostrich for putting his head in the mud and thinking nobody sees it and like a phoenix for its power of springing from the ashes of its faults and vices and soaring into the sky well mark let us hope so End of section 18